Hey, daters. Are you sick of small talk and no date being planned? Well, I'm excited to introduce you to First Rounds on Me, a revolutionary dating app designed for modern singles who are fed up with the frustrations of today's dating scene. The app is all about actually helping you plan dates and build genuine connections. How so? Well, the only way you match with someone is by planning a date. Send a date, a time, and a location, and then the rest is up to you. Ready to go on real dates? You can get one free month of their premium subscription with code DOCTOR, D-O-C-T-O-R. Download First Rounds on Me using the link in the show notes and start building meaningful connections offline. Hello and welcome to Reimagining Love. I'm Dr. Alexandra Solomon. Relationships have the power to wound us and the power to heal us. As a clinical psychologist, author, and professor at Northwestern University, I've devoted my life to studying intimate partnerships and family dynamics. On Reimagining Love, I'm here to translate complex clinical topics into tools and takeaways that you can use in your relationships today. If you're ready to develop relational self-awareness and create vibrant and loving relationships with the people who matter most to you, you've come to the right place. I'm so glad that you're here. Hi there. I am so happy to be in your ears today with a solo episode. In these solo episodes, I bring the tools of relational self-awareness to help you better understand and transform complex and difficult relationship dynamics. Today, we are going to do a little bit of unpacking and exploring at the intersection of intimate partnership and work stress. And this is a very busy intersection indeed. My team and I spent a lot of time looking at the research and brainstorming how to approach this episode. And I'm going to tell you right up top, we're going to have to come back to it in the future. I am going to do today what I often do, which is just start here with today's show and then use your feedback about this episode to guide when and how I come back to the topic. And given that the topic of work stress in intimate partnership is so huge, I had to narrow it down. So today I'm going to talk very specifically about how to protect your intimate relationship or your marriage from the grind of work stress. I'm going to first look at the big picture and do what I always do, which is give some framing for this topic. Second, I'm going to talk through what some of the data tells us about the impact of work stress on intimate relationships. Third, I'm going to explore the experience of work stress through the lens of relational self-awareness. And then fourth, I'm going to offer tools designed to help you and your partner talk, feel, and behave differently vis-a-vis work stress. All right, bottom line up top is this. Although work stress lives inside of one partner, the impact is felt, and as you'll see, it's felt deeply by both partners. Work stress happens, it's common, but how you manage work stress matters. And when work stress is poorly managed, 
it has the power to erode relationship quality. There is a companion worksheet for newsletter subscribers. So if you're already subscribed, the worksheet for this episode is going to pop right into your inbox. If you aren't a subscriber, head to www.dralexandrasolomon.com slash workstress to download the worksheet. Okay, so some framing concepts. I have five of them for you. (laughs) Framing concept number one. Today we're talking about jobs paid labor, workforce employment. So that means I'm not talking about the impact of invisible labor or domestic labor on your intimate relationship. I'm also not talking about the impact of invisible labor or domestic labor on your experiences in the paid workforce. And I'm not talking about the interplay between one partner's invisible labor and another partner's paid labor. Each of those is a huge, meaty, important topic. And a little sneak peek, I have a wonderful episode in the pipeline about the impact of domestic labor on intimate relationship dynamics. And I know we're going to come back to these facets over time. Framing concept number two, although it is the case that not all jobs are paid for our purposes today, I am defining your job as what you do for money. I'm talking more specifically about your relationship with your job, your partner's relationship with their job, and the relationship that each of you has with your partner's job. And a job is itself a pretty nuanced thing, right? So a job is about survival. A job is about self-expression. And a job is sometimes about some of both. So imagine in your mind right now, two circles. One circle is survival, the money that you need to keep a roof over your head. The other circle is self-expression, where you go, what you do to express who you are, your identity, your passion, your gifts. When it comes to your job, how much overlap is there between those two circles? Are they totally separate? Like what you do to survive is way over here and what you do to express your identity is over there. Are they totally merged, like just one circle? What you do to pay your bills and what you do to express who you are as a person are essentially the same. Or is there, you know, some degree of overlap? Your job pays the bills and your job is an important expression of who you are as a person. I think this is also an important and interesting point of both self-reflection and a point of curious dialogue between you and your partner. So it's interesting to kind of open up and talk with your partner about those two circles. What is the blend of survival and self-expression for you in your relationship with your work? What is the blend of survival and self-expression for your partner in their relationship with their work? I'm bringing this up because that blend of survival and self-expression is going to shape how you hear the content I cover in this episode. If you're the primary breadwinner, you're going to hear this content differently than if you are not the primary breadwinner or perhaps not bringing income in at all. And although I'm not talking directly about money today, money and meaning are always in the mix when we're talking about work. Framing concept number three. We are currently in this moment living through a time of seismic shifts around work. The pandemic has left no domains of life 
untouched. And so, of course, the pandemic has profoundly affected the world of work. The dust is far from settled. And I'm sure there's a case to be made that many of the shifts we're seeing began long before we'd ever heard of COVID-19. But the pandemic has no doubt changed our relationship with work. This really stood out to me when I was hiring this year's team of graduate teaching assistants for Marriage 101, the undergraduate class that I teach. I really think that almost half, if not half, of the nearly 20 candidates that I interviewed for teaching assistant jobs talked about having made a career shift to becoming a marriage and family therapist because of the pandemic, inspired by the pandemic, sort of a, a crisis of meaning in their lives. And I just recently heard Nancy Pelosi say that the plural of anecdote is not data. Nevertheless, I've spent lots and lots of years interviewing teaching assistants and asking them why they decided to start training as a marriage and family therapist. And I have never heard this many stories about a crisis of meaning, a second career, a pivot. And so the, the trend struck me. But then I do also have a little bit of actual data. The Pew Research Foundation says that in the U.S., between April 2021 and March 2022, that was the period of time in which quit rates reached, you know, sort of these like pandemic slash post-pandemic, whatever that means, highs. And that these highs that we hit, you know, spring 2021 to spring 2022, these highs are highs that have not been seen since the 1970s. And that 60% of workers who were switching jobs saw an increase in their earnings versus where they were even just like a year earlier. What this means is that you're listening to this episode about couples and work stress during a time of significant upheaval at both the level of the individual and at the level of the system. Framing concept number four, <laughs> your relationship with work is shaped by so many factors, including your cultural background and identity variables like your race, your gender, your socioeconomic status, your sexuality, your gender expression, et cetera, et cetera. And this is true for your partner as well. So that means that work stress is not a monolithic experience. And that means that people who occupy one or more marginalized identities often have work stress that is specifically based on systemic inequality, the experience of workplace microaggressions, and other forms of what psychologists call minority stress. That means it's really important for a partner who is experiencing work stress that stems from their marginalized identities, they need to be able to come home and have home be a place of respite and sustenance, a place where they can share the experiences they've had of microaggression, of mistreatment, of unfair policies. And this means that they need to have those experiences validated by their partner. For example, that feels really hurtful. That sucks. Versus questioned. For example, are you sure that happened because of race? Maybe your coworker just misunderstood you. Oh, it's hard to even say that. Example out loud. This kind of invalidation, which ends up becoming then a microaggression on top of a microaggression, this kind of validation is more likely to happen 
when it happens around a domain of difference within the couple. For example, partners of different races or partners of different genders, right? We're more likely to experience invalidation in those kind of cross-cultural domains. And the invalidation very likely feels that much worse. And then framing concept number five is this. Work stress does not happen in a vacuum. Work stress happens in a context and it is heightened in circumstances in which people are not being paid fairly or well, in situations where people are expected to work long hours or unpredictable hours or to be available around the clock. It's contextualized in situations where people are expected to work in conditions that are inhospitable and in situations where people are being treated like cogs in a wheel rather than as what people are, which is three-dimensional, flesh and blood, whole human beings. And so I just want to make sure that I am crystal clear that feeling stressed, feeling angry, feeling burnt out about work is an adaptive response. It is an adaptive response, a healthy response to unfair or unresponsive workplace conditions. I want to just be so clear in that because for the rest of the episode, I'm going to be using the term work stress and I'm going to be talking about work stress in a general way, but I want to be able to trust you that you're going to modify the insights and the tools to fit the unique contours of your situation. Okay, so moving along, we're going to talk about some data for a moment, but I want to give you the punchline up top. Here's the punchline about the science. Stress is highly contagious. When you live with someone and build a life with someone and they are struggling with their job, it affects you. Not because you are codependent, but because you are co-regulated. We are social creatures. Our nervous systems play off each other, key off each other. And that is especially true in intimate partnership. How you are doing affects your partner. How your partner is doing affects you. So I want you to practice stress management because you deserve to feel calm and grounded on the inside. But I also want you to practice stress management because the quality of your relationship rests in part on how well you are managing your own stress. The same is obviously true in terms of your partner managing their own stress for their sake and for yours. Okay, so here comes the science. There's a body of research around what's called work-family conflict. And that body of research looks at two types of work-family conflict. Type one, family-to-work conflict. And this is when challenges, crises, or complexities at home impair your ability to work effectively. Type two is work-to-family conflict which is when challenges, crises, or complexities at work impair your ability to show up fully at home. So a study by Harris and Segovia from 2021 looked at a sample of heterosexual couples and found there was a significant positive relationship between work-family conflict, both kinds, family-to-work and work-to-family, and burnout. So a significant positive correlation, the more work-family conflict you have, the more burnout you have. 
The less work-family conflict you have, the less burnout you have. By the way, the World Health Organization defines burnout as a syndrome conceptualized as resulting from chronic workplace stress that has not been successfully managed. And burnout has three elements. So here's a little, a little gut check for you. Three elements of burnout. One, emotional exhaustion, feeling emotionally overextended or drained by others. Element two, depersonalization, feeling like cynical attitudes towards people who are the recipients of your services. And then three is reduced personal accomplishment. So a decline in your feelings of competence and successful achievement at work. So this study by Harris and Segovia. So the bottom line here is that when work stress comes home to family, there are negative consequences for both men and women in couples. Okay, here's the second study I want to tell you about, because it's not just that workplace stress comes home. It's that when workplace stress comes home, it affects our bodies and our healths. So check this out. In 2019, there was a team of researchers, Wigrama, Klopek, and O'Neill at the University of Georgia. And they looked at a sample of 235 working husbands and working wives over 27 years. So longitudinal data, all heterosexual couples, again, couples from rural Iowa. And they had lots of variables they tracked over 27 years, including these two variables, body mass index and person work mismatch. Okay, so what you may ask, does person work mismatch mean? It's a variable that you can track for an individual, and it measures the degree to which they feel like there is an incompatibility between themselves and the work they're doing. Somebody who is experiencing person work mismatch says things like, my job does not match my education and experience. My job does not allow me to use my skills and abilities. My job does not match what I would like to be doing. I should have a different job given my experience. I am overqualified for this job. So person work mismatch is a subjective kind of a thing and it reflects how you view your work. And this variable, person work mismatch, has been found to lead to less job satisfaction, poorer job performance, and lower commitment at work. And when you experience person work mismatch, you have a greater risk of mental and physical health consequences. So all that had been established, but these researchers, Wigrama, Klopek, and O'Neill, took it to the next level. So here's what they found. The people in their study who had person work mismatch, when they were in their 40s, those people had more significant increases in their body mass index over the next couple of decades versus people in the study who did not have person work mismatch. So people who experienced person work mismatch gained more weight, they ended up with higher BMIs in that increase, that like increasing slope of higher BMI contributed to multiple physical health outcomes later in life. Okay, fine. We can hold on to that. I mean, that's pretty significant right there, right? The grind of feeling like my job doesn't get me. 
this is not the work I should be doing. Like that is a grind. It, it takes a toll. It puts you at risk of increased BMI and the physical health outcomes that can result from that. But here's our kicker. Here's our reimagining love kicker. When my spouse has a lot of person work mismatch, it doesn't just affect their BMI trajectory and put their physical health at risk. It affects my BMI trajectory and creates an increased risk of health outcomes later in life for me. So this research highlights a profound, significant relational element in the experience of work stress and health. What's happening inside of you affects me. What's happening inside of me affects you. So just being the partner of somebody who's experiencing person work mismatch sets you up to have negative health outcomes decades later. That's pretty significant, hey? Okay, our last study is from 2014, King and DeLongis, and they published this in the Journal of Family Psychology. They looked, again, 87 heterosexual couples. And in these couples, one partner is a paramedic. Here's what they found. The paramedic's work stress was positively correlated with that partner coming home and ruminating and withdrawing. So the more stressed out the paramedic was, the more likely they were to come home and ruminate and withdraw. But then they found that the more the paramedic partner was ruminating and withdrawing, this also was linked to increases in their partner's withdrawal and increases in tension and maladaptive coping in both partners. So basically, these researchers point out the feedback loop or the cycle. The more stress you are at work, the more you come home and ruminate and withdraw. The more you come home and ruminate and withdraw, the more I withdraw and the more tension there is between us and the more maladaptively we cope with this whole situation. So this study really highlights the powerful and significant interactional cycle. So these three studies, when put together, make the case very clearly, work stress comes home, it creates strain on the person who's experiencing the work stress, it creates strain on the person who's the sort of collateral damage of their partner's work stress, and it creates strain on the relationship itself. So let's figure out what the heck we do about it. Do you feel like you're at a crossroads in your love life? Maybe you are sick of modern dating or wondering if the person that you're with is your person. Whatever your situation, I have the perfect podcast for you, Dateable. Dateable is your insider's look into modern dating, hosted by Julie Krafchick and Yue Shu. Julie and Yue bring a sense of humor to their insightful explorations of all things dating, turning matches into actual dates, the psychology of relationships, red flags, attachment styles, and so much more. I am proud to have been a guest on their podcast three times. So if you're looking for a great starting point, check out my latest episode with them when you're ready and they're not. I'll put a link at the bottom of the show notes. 
Wherever you start, this podcast is going to help you feel inspired to date differently and create a love life that works for you. Subscribe to Dateable wherever you get your podcasts. All right, moving on to part three of this episode, which is a relational self-awareness framework for work stress. I think this might be my favorite part of the episode. Maybe not. Maybe I love the whole episode. I like that science that we just did. But this part is pretty darn fascinating to me, and I hope for you. Okay, so work stress often sounds like this. My boss sucks. My coworkers are unhelpful. The people who report to me are incompetent. Nothing I do at work is ever enough. I'm so bored. I'm so disengaged. I'm so burned out. As I said in the beginning of the episode, there are actual real world root causes for any or all of those experiences. And because this is reimagining love, you know darn well that I'm about to invite and challenge you to peel back a layer or two and look at specifically what you bring to the table, what you bring to this dynamic, what you bring to how you particularly and uniquely experience your workplace. You walk into work or you zoom into work with a particular set of gifts and tendencies and growing edges that are based on your personality, your temperament, your early experiences, your wounds, your traumas. You are primed, so to speak, to perceive workplace dynamics in a particular way based on your history. You have a particular pair of glasses through which you experience workplace dynamics. And by the way, episode number 50 of Reimagining Love, which is called Tending to Little You and Exploring Your Family of Origin, is going to help you understand how and why we start to make the connections that we're about to make. Bringing relational self-awareness to work stress opens up new possibilities for how you can cope with the experience of being stressed out at work. When we use the tools of relational self-awareness, we have a better chance of doing what the serenity prayer asks us to do, which is find serenity that we need to accept the things we can't change, find the courage we need to change the things we can change, and find the wisdom we need to know the difference. So when we bring the tools of relational self-awareness to analyzing our experience of work stress, It's not to invalidate the experience of work stress in any way, shape, or form. It's about a process for developing insight into how you experience work stress so that you can make a little bit more wiggle room, so you can open up new possibilities for how you experience work stress. And here's what I want to posit to you. Workplace dynamics carry powerful, but perhaps unconscious, parallels to your family of origin dynamics. I'm going to say it again. Workplace dynamics carry powerful, but perhaps unconscious parallels to your family of origin dynamics. The relationship between you and your boss parallels the relationship between you and your attachment figures, i.e. the big people who raised you. The relationship between you and your coworkers parallels the relationship between you and your siblings, you and your cousins, you and your peers. The relationship between you and your employees 
can activate inside of you old wounds, sensitivities, or patterns that have to do with power and dependence. Now, obviously, your family of origin and your place of work are not the same. They're not the same. But I want you to be exploring the echoes. Because in the places where there are echoes or parallels, your experience of stress might be shaped a little or a lot by a part of you that gets confused about then versus now. A part of you that is importing old feelings into the current moment and therefore puts you at risk of doing things like overfunctioning, like getting belligerent, like feeling unseen or unimportant. Let me give you a few examples of how that might work. If you were a parentified child, which listen to episode number 50 to get some of this language down. If you were a parentified child, you might tense up when the people who work for you need direction from you or when they start to ask you a lot of questions. Or you may have this sort of like baseline resentment that you are responsible to them. Because even though today you are big and strong and capable and totally able to handle the fact that you are responsible to people who report to you. Back when you were little, you had people looking to you and leaning on you at a time when you actually could not be responsible to them, right? At a time when it was too much. You were responsible at a time when you should not have had to be responsible. And that may leave inside of you an echo or an imprint or a tendency to get a little reactive, a little resentful when once again, here you are, you are responsible to people. So your emotional work is to let little you know, I've got this. I've got this. Little you gets to go rest or play, or do something else while present day you handles what needs to be handled. If you grew up in a family of origin where you had to compete with your siblings for the scarce resource of parental attention or parental affection, that little part of you, little you, might get triggered or activated when you are part of a team that has to report to a boss. That little part of you might end up fighting like hell for attention. That little part of you might get petty or might get envious when a colleague of yours is getting attention. Or that little part of you might be so sick of having to fight for the limelight that it just ends up opting out or perhaps sabotaging or disengaging. But again, it's like a dynamic in the here and now that is informed or shaped by old experiences. So here again, in this situation, your emotional work is to notice when those old feelings are getting stirred up and to remind yourself ever so gently and ever so compassionately, that was then, this is now. A third example, perhaps, is if you grew up with a parent or caregiver who was unpredictable or punitive, that little you may have a tendency to track your boss's moods really, really closely because that was quite literally a survival strategy 
back then. When you were little, you had to track the mood of your attachment figure if your attachment figure was unpredictable or if they were punitive. So you may have a tendency then to bring that sense, that feeling, that kind of hypervigilance into your workplace. But here's what I want little you to know. Even if today you actually do have a mercurial boss, like a boss who is a bit unpredictable, who does swing a bit moody, it is no longer for you about survival in the same way. You get to remind little you that it's not about survival and that your boss can have a mood and you can still do your job and you actually can deal with whatever shenanigans your boss might pull. Okay. That's a lot, right? But making those making those connections between then and now and sort of looking at the workplace like a system, right? A family is a system, a workplace is a system, and therefore some of those dynamics that have to do with power and hierarchy, with competition, those dynamics that were alive in your family of origin are alive at work. And based on what you experienced when you were little, you likely have particular unique ways that you perceive, make sense of, and emotionally experience what's happening at work. And the more you understand that, the more you tool yourself with the ability to maneuver and know when to speak up, when to stay quiet, when to try to advocate for change, when to accept what's happening, when to step away, all of that. Okay. Home stretch part four of this episode is all about strategies, strategies to protect your relationship. So we're going to get really into the how. And I want to remind you, there is a companion worksheet for newsletter subscribers. If you're already on my weekly newsletter, the worksheet for this episode is going to arrive in your inbox. But if you aren't a subscriber, head to dralexandersolomon.com slash workstress to download the worksheet. You can also find that link in the show notes. All right, strategies. Strategies to protect you and your partner from the grind of work stress. I'm going to break these strategies down into three categories. There are some strategies here for the stressed out partner. There are strategies here for the one whose partner is stressed out. And there are strategies here for the couple. So I've broken them down this way knowing full well that sometimes you might be the stressed out partner, sometimes your partner might be the stressed out partner, and sometimes you both might be the stressed out partner. So, okay, let's talk first about some strategies for the stressed out partner. So we know that the central thesis of this whole episode has been that work stress lives inside of you, but it affects your partner. So these are strategies that are about you taking responsibility for your work stress and for the inevitable fact that it's going to affect your partner, not because you suck, but because that's what it means to link your life up with your partner's life. So these strategies are offered not as a guilt trip, but rather as an invitation to self-compassionate responsibility. Okay, so strategy one is to just get real about your self-care. Are you moving your body regularly and in ways that feel good? How is your nutrition? Really? How is it really? How is your, you know, what we call sleep hygiene? Are you putting your phone away for a bit before you go to sleep? 
Are you stopping caffeine early enough in the day? Are you trying to keep regular-ish hours for when you sleep, et cetera, et cetera? And how is your use of alcohol and drugs, right? Just like getting real about how you're caring for yourself. When you're caring well for yourself, you have more internal capacity to deal with work stress. You can reach for healthy coping strategies versus ones that end up making you feel that much more stuck, that much more kind of under the the weight of all of it. Okay, strategy number two is get to know what calm actually feels like so that you know what stressed out actually feels like. When I had my friend Jason Gaddis on the show, that was episode number 35, in case you missed it, he talked with us about how some of us actually don't really even know what feeling good in our bodies feels like. Some of us don't actually know what calm feels like. You know, his book is called Getting to Zero. Some of us don't even know what zero feels like, what kind of neutral, present, at ease feels like. It could be the case that you have been in overdrive for so damn long that you, you've you stopped really knowing what normal feels like, quote unquote normal. Or it could be the case that when you get stressed out, you kind of go numb and you get so disconnected from your body that you you aren't really coding or noticing that you're stressed out. So when you keep up with self-care practices, that helps you feel your way into the contrast between calm and stressed, the difference between calm and stressed. So that way, you know Right, You know when you're stressed, and when you know you're stressed, you can take responsibility for it. You can own, aha, I'm stressed. And when you own that you're stressed, you change the entire dynamic between you and your partner. And you can then say something like, you know what, my love, I am not going to be good company right now because I can feel all this stress inside my body. I'm going to go lay down for 30 minutes, and then I want to connect with you. Right? When you own it, you can, you can shift it, you can tend to the stress, and it's so much more preferable to withdrawing or snapping, which is what's going to happen when you aren't even aware that you are experiencing stress. Okay, my third strategy for you, stressed out partner, is this. I want you to be careful of the cards you pull, you know, of like kind of your, your go-to maneuvers when you are stressed out. And these are things like saying inside of your head, well, my job brings in all the money around here, or well, my job is more high stakes, or my job involves more risk, like these kind of like sneaky, subtle, making a hierarchy sort of cards. And these might not be things that you say out loud to your partner. I mean, they might be, but Notice whether or not you've got some of those things rattling around inside of your head, especially notice if those things are rattling around inside your head when you and your partner are talking about your stressed out days, your stressful days. Are you making a hierarchy in your head? And perhaps like, are you therefore holding back on some empathy for your partner's experience? Because you've got this story that like your partner's got it easier or the stakes of their job are lower. Or on the flip side, 
Do you have this hierarchy inside your head and you are silencing yourself about something that you're experiencing at your workplace that is challenging or exciting because your story is that you have it easier than your partner does or your job is less risky than your partner's job or the stakes aren't as high as your partner's stakes or the money, you you bring in less money than your partner. So are you sort of silencing yourself because you've got this, again, this like workplace hierarchy, my job versus your job that is either compromising your empathy or compromising your ability to ask your partner for empathy. Because here's what I know for sure. Your relationship is going to be stronger if you both have this mindset that work is work. That's it. Work is work. No hierarchy, no comparison, no competition for the Olympics of suffering, no competition for the Olympics of importance. It's just work. You have a job. I have a job. You experience your job in a particular way. I experience my job in a particular way. And we together have a value that we can talk that through with each other, that experiences we're having at work warrant processing in our relationship. Okay, strategy number four is for the stressed out partner. I want you to be intentional about how you transition from work to home. What helps you transition? For lots of us, it's the commute. You know, if you listen to a podcast or rest your eyes, if you take the train or if you walk home, like just be intentional about that transition time. Your body is changing locations. So set an intention for your mind to also be transitioning out of work and into home. This is obviously trickier if you work from home because you're just (laughs) maybe opening a door and going into a different room. But think about what else you can do to signify that you're crossing over. Perhaps you change clothes. Perhaps you have a snack or a drink. I love a 5 p.m. kombucha, for example. Even if you end up kind of going, quote unquote, back to work later on in the evening, I still do want you to be intentional about making a delineation inside of yourself and with your partner about I am working now versus I am not working now. This helps your partner know what to expect from you And it prevents that like icky feeling of thinking that your partner is there with you, but then you're realizing that actually their mind is on work or they're checking a work email while you talk to them, which is objectively hurtful and confusing. But even more so for those of us who grew up in a family of origin where we felt unseen or not prioritized. So the more we can make those transitions inside our minds with our bodies, like transitioning from work to home, the more we will kind of protect our relationship from the impact of workplace stress. Okay, last strategy for the stressed out partner. Make sure that you complete the stress cycle. Okay, what is the stress cycle, you ask? (laughs) Dr. Emily Nagoski, who was featured on episode number 18 of Reimagining Love, and her sister, Amelia, wrote an amazing book called Burnout. The Secret to Unlocking the Stress Cycle. The book and the episode are linked in the show notes. And Emily and Amelia emphasize the importance of completing the stress cycle, which is an embodied practice. We complete the stress cycle with an embodied practice. So we have uh, in our family this little schnoodle named Sawyer. And when we take her for a walk, 
and she has to pass like a big barky dog, she gets so stressed out. She's little. <laughs> but then once we've passed the dog and she knows that she has, you know, survived, she will live to see another day. She knows that she's safe. What does she do? She does a big body shake that goes from her little wet nose all the way to her little nub of a tail. That shake that she does completes her stress cycle. She takes the stress of the big barky dog and she runs it through her body and she grounds herself, right? She like runs that energy through. She completes the stress cycle. The Nagoski sisters say that even though we too are mammals, just like the schnoodles of the world, <laughs> we tend to leave our stress cycles incomplete, especially when it's like chronic stress, which just ends up feeling like status quo inside of our bodies. So the Nagoskis want us to incorporate body-based practices that help us shift from that defensive, hypervigilant posture that we need. We need that posture when there actually is a threat. So there are six suggestions they have. One is just like breath work. Breathe in for a slow count of five. Hold it for a count of five. Exhale slowly for a count of 10. And then pause and repeat that three times. That's a really simple breath practice that will help you close the stress cycle throughout your day. Socialize. Having positive social interactions with your coworkers or even with the person who's making your coffee in the morning, those matter. Those little friendly exchanges remind your brain that you are safe, that the world is safe, that there's like goodness in the world. Those little practices matter. The third one they suggest for us is laugh. Because you can't laugh and feel defensive at the same time. Seek affection, a nice warm hug, like at least 20 seconds, or what I call <laughs> with my niece, uh, hugging till it's awkward, <laughs> like a nice hug that just goes on until it gets a little bit awkward. Those are so good for us. Cozying up with a pet also does the trick in terms of, again, helping you quiet your stress response. Crying. Crying is a way of completing the stress cycle. And even though a big cry does not change your work situation, it changes your body. And that changes how you relate to the work situation. And the last one is to engage in creative expression, whatever that looks like for you. As the Nagoskis say, creative expression creates, quote, a context that tolerates and even encourages big emotions. And that art of all kinds gives us the chance to celebrate and move through our big emotions, end quote. Okay, here are strategies that are going to help you cope. And they're specifically centered on how your partner tends to manifest their stress. So strategy number one, if your partner becomes withdrawn under stress, I want you to tend to yourself and I want you to speak to the distance. If your partner becomes withdrawn, you might have the urge to become the entertainer, to offer a steady stream of activities or questions designed to draw your partner out. And that might be fine for a time, but I want you to pay attention to if you're starting to feel resentful about that, because that's a tiring place to be. I want you to honor the hurt or the anger that you feel about your partner being withdrawn. And then I want you to give yourself permission to pivot and do something that makes you feel good or calm 
or occupied because you can only invite your partner's attention. You cannot demand it. If this is for you and your relationship, if this is a big enduring pattern, I also want you to speak to it at a separate time when your partner feels more approachable to you. I want you to ask your partner to talk through this dynamic with you. You could say something like, hey, my dear, when you're stressed, I feel like you tend to pull away and shut down and I end up feeling caught. There's a part of me that wants to keep knocking on your door and enticing you to come out and be with me. But there's a part of me that also wants to pull back too. I know that I'm at risk of taking it personally, even if I rationally or logically know that you are stressed about work. My feelings get hurt when you feel so far away. So can we talk about how you and I can stay more connected with each other, even when you're stressed? Okay, strategy two. If your partner, when they are stressed out, needs or wants a lot of emotional processing, be honest about your capacity. That's the strategy. Be honest about your capacity. You are likely a very important resource for your partner, but you are not perfect and your patience is not limitless. If your partner wants to talk about the drama of the day at work and you are simply too maxed out or too depleted, You can be both truthful and tactful. I can imagine you saying something like this. I'm sorry. I know you've had a shit day. I just don't have a lot in my tank right now. Can we do perhaps like a 10 minute debrief and then put it away for the night? Even though I don't have a lot of capacity for processing your work stress tonight, I do have a lot of capacity for watching Yellowstone or eating ice cream or playing a game. How does that sound? Strategy number three, if your partner becomes irritable under work stress, take space. Being stressed out does not give someone license to say whatever they want or to act any old kind of way under the guise of being stressed. So if your partner is lashing out at you, I do want you to resist the urge to retaliate or to escalate. I want you to instead simply say something like this. My dear, (laughs) I understand that you've had a really bad day and you are under a great deal of stress. I have empathy for what you're going through. And I'm having a really hard time with your tone of voice and with how you're talking to me right now. So I'm going to take a little bit of space. At a separate time, then, I do want to see if the two of you can come together and do some problem solving for how to handle that sequence differently in the future. The sequence being your partner comes home, they're stressed, they're irritable, they're snapping. Is there perhaps a code word that the two of you can agree that you'll use? Perhaps cantaloupe. (laughs) That when you use that code word, it flags to your partner that you're noticing that their tone has gotten sharp and that you are asking them to please pivot, press pause, step away, go do some self-care, right? Sometimes a code word can be less, you know, sort of shameful for your partner or triggering for your partner. It can be less likely to spike defensiveness in your partner while still giving you a way to speak to what you are noticing and what you are feeling. Okay, strategy number four is, this is for for no matter how your partner manifests their stress, I want you to resist the urge 
to turn your partner's stress into something that you need to fix. Much as you might crave a magic wand to make your partner's stress go away for their sake, as well as for your sake, you can't fix or erase your partner's work stress. In fact, if your partner is talking to you about their work stress and your go-to move is to sort of put on your superhero cape and attempt to save them from their stress by offering solutions and problem solving and what if you just did this and what if you just did this, that very likely is going to backfire. And it's going to leave them feeling invalidated and saying something like, "Ugh, you don't get it. It's not that easy or don't tell me what to do. And then when they do that, you're going to feel hurt or frustrated and like, well, I was just trying to help. Gosh, all I was trying to do is offer you some different ideas or to fix it for you. So bypass that whole thing and just don't ever underestimate the power of empathy and the power of a patient listening ear. Your patient presence is enough. You don't have to fix it. You can't fix it. And your attempts to fix it are likely to feel undermining or invalidating to your partner. Okay. Five, last strategy for you, partner of the stressed out person. I would like to encourage you to explore what their stress triggers inside of you. So Yes, obviously, there's a level at which it is just challenging when your partner is stressed out. But I do also want you to do a little bit of what I call ghost busting. What does your partner's withdrawn or needy or irritable behavior about their job, what does it remind you of from your past? Perhaps your partner's irritability reminds you of a parent of yours who took out their work frustrations on you when you were little. Or perhaps your partner's irritability feels indulgent and careless to you because you were expected to keep all of your emotions locked down when you were little. Or perhaps your partner's neediness is hard for you because you were overly responsible for taking care of your little brothers and sisters, or you had a parent who was struggling with depression. And so there's a part of you that just wants to say enough already, just deal with yourself. Making the connection between your past and your present helps you understand your sensitivity, and it gives you the opportunity to tend to little you. It also gives you the opportunity to approach your partner, letting them know about how your history affects the relationship dynamic. And you're sharing this information, not as a cudgel, like, how could you do this to me after all I went through as a kid, but rather as an invitation. My dear, how do we honor both your work stress and my sensitivity? Last section is strategies for the couple. So here are some strategies for you and your partner to make use of together. Strategy number one is to practice empowered communication. We've talked a lot about empowered communication in other episodes of Reimagining Love, but here's a couple of good reminders. If and when you want to process something stressful from work with your partner, do what I call going meta first. Go meta first. Ask, can we talk about a work issue I'm having? Like ask the question first rather than just diving headlong in it. Also set your partner up for success by articulating upfront as best you can 
what it is that you want from them. Do you want a sounding board? Do you want sympathy? Do you want advice? Do you want problem solving? Strategy number two is to resource yourselves. I want each of you to be thinking about who else you can process work problems with besides each other. Turning to other people, other contexts can protect your relationship from becoming overburdened. Couples need to have other people to support them individually and collectively. Strategy number three is to put work talk under stimulus control. Stimulus control is a term from behavioral psychology, which is about like pairing a stimulus with a certain context or setting. So if it feels to you like work talk is taking over your whole relationship, you and your partner could put work talk under stimulus control, meaning that you only talk about work for X number of minutes and like literally set a timer. Or you only talk about work talk when you clean the dinner dishes or when you sit in a bath together or when you take the dog for a walk. So really kind of like putting a boundary around it that can help protect the relationship from the ongoing stress and strain and grind of work stress. Then my last suggestion to you is to just talk differently with each other about your jobs. Maybe it feels like you're stuck in a rut, just kind of like complaining endlessly about work. So I want you to see what happens if you have a different kind of conversation with your partner about work. So here are some relational self-awareness based discussion questions to spark a new dialogue with your partner about work. Tell me something about your work history that I don't already know. What was your first job? What do you remember about it? What do you enjoy about your job? Why? When do you feel most confident and relaxed at work? Why? What do you dislike most about your job? Why? What's your dream job? When do you feel least supported by me with respect to your job? Why? When do you feel most supported by me with respect to your job? And why? Okay, there you go. That's what I got for you today. (laughs) I hope that you have enjoyed this exploration of the impact of work stress on couple dynamics and how to protect your relationship. I hope that you come away with some fresh insights, some new tools, feeling a bit nourished around this whole complex topic. So final reminder about the companion worksheet, which has got lots and lots of good stuff from the episode in it. It is available for newsletter subscribers. So you're already going to get it in your inbox. If you are a subscriber, if not, go to dralexandrasolomoncom slash work stress to download the worksheet. That link again is in the show notes also. Okay. Until next time, be well. Do you have a relationship question that you want to have answered on the show? Follow the link in the show notes of this episode to send in a written or audio question. Questions can be about intimate partnerships, family relationships, friendships, you name it. I can't wait to hear from you. 